We're going to take a break from our study today of 1 John, and uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and we're going to we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, primarily focusing on a few select verses. But um, I've entitled this message, A Message from My Heart to the Church. And I want to speak from my heart um, to the church. And in order to begin, first, let me say a few personal comments. I, I, I love this church. I mean, I want to say that again. I, I love this church. And that means that I love the concept of this church, but I love everybody in this church, right? This has been the preoccupation of my heart for the last 10 years. And I love the church universal. I love the church at large. It just I remember years ago having a conversation with someone, and I remember saying, you know, if I ever... If I ever got called to the ministry, I said, I think my ministry is going to be toward the church, to be an evangelist within the church, to the church. Because I think a lot of what's transpired in the church over the past few years have been, well, uh, uh, there's a lot of spinning of the wheels, I'll say. I have a passion for the church. I love the church because we're commanded we are commanded to love the church. Paul gave us that command. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I just have a great love for the church. My, my heart's desire is to see the church be the church. Sounds weird, but it's really true. My heart's desire is to see the church become the church not an organization of men not an organization that's fluid and corporate in nature but a, a group of people who love christ who want to see the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom on earth move forward with power and to see the church vibrant and powerful once again and as your shepherd as your shepherd Sometimes there's times where you have to speak things of, of concern, where you, you, you say, well, there's a warning, and that's what I want to do today, is I want to give you a warning. You know, as I look back on the past 10 years, we truly are the tabernacle in the wilderness, right? If you look back on all the things that we, over the last 10 years, some of, some of you have been with us uh, from the beginning, no, of, of all the challenges that we faced as a church. I remember when we were forming the church, someone once said, they won't make it six weeks, never mind six months. And, uh, and we're, we're still here. Praise God for His grace and mercy. But I want to share something with you. There is a danger on the horizon. There is a danger on the horizon. And it is infiltrating church by church by church. It's so amazing because all the pastor friends that I have and I speak to, they're all speaking about this too, the things that they're seeing. And I think the biggest challenge we face as a church can probably be described as this, indifference, apathy, formalism, and religious tradition, right? 
Sometimes it's called lukewarmness, being lukewarm, right? When Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22, verse 27, you don't have to turn there. When Jesus was asked by some of the scribes, what, what's, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus responded with Deuteronomy 6.4, which reads as follows. Hear, O Israel. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, thy soul, and thy mind. Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the greatest commandment. And it is at the heart of pure faith. I want to emphasize this. It is at the heart of pure faith. We as Christians are called to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. That's what we're called to do. That's the primary calling. You look at the landscape of the church today, there's a lot of other things that they say are primary. But you cannot evangelize if you do not love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. You cannot serve in the church if you don't love the Lord God with all of your mind, your heart, and your soul. The primary purity of the faith is to love God. And we are called, notice as Deuteronomy puts it, we are to love the uh, Lord God with all of our heart. There goes the center of our will and the center of our emotion. Love them with all of your heart, with all of your soul. That is the very essence of who you are as a person. And with all of our might, which is every pursuit in life that we pursue. God asks for it all. As a matter of fact, I'll take it a step further. God demands it all of his people. In the New Testament, there are several verses that parallel that, but one of them that I like in particular is Galatians 2.20. And it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses focuses on the condition of the hearts. And notice what he says. He said, our heart is to be inclined toward God, dispositioned toward God, fixated upon God. And Paul speaks in Galatians 2 of no longer living for self. No longer living for self. Matter of fact, he takes it a step further. He says, I've been crucified The world has been crucified to me. I have been crucified. I have been killed as far as the passions and the things of the the world are concerned. He goes on to say that I'm living by faith, and that faith is in the Son of God. My life is by faith, and it is in the Son of God. And he says of that Son of God, Christ who loved me and delivered himself up for me. This is the purity of the faith. This is where I think we as Christians, we as a church, and all Bible-believing Christians need to come back to. We need to simplify this. That we live for Christ. That our love is for Christ. That we love God. And everything else is peripheral. Yet as you look around, you see not everybody who professes Christ has a hunger and desire for Christ. And I think that is tremendously, tremendously sad. 
It's not evident in many people. The danger of indifference, the danger of apathy, the danger of formalism and religious tradition is that it deals a death blow, a death blow to the true worship of God. God has been speaking to my heart about authenticity. What does it mean to be found in Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is the high calling by which He called us? And I believe that we as believers need to come back to that point. Let me share something. There is a difference, a profound difference, between form of worship, the form of worship, and true worship. There is a profound difference between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ. And a form of worship is mostly revealed in a lukewarmness toward the things of God. It's often evident in disengagement from the church, from the people of God, from the study and the meditation of the Word of God. This is what we see. This is, this is what formalism, indifference looks like. In Revelation 3, we see recorded the Lord's words to the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was the apostate church. It was the lukewarm church. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, not my words, the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3:15 through 16. He says, "I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold." And I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That word spit means to regurgitate. To more graphic terms, it means it's going to be vomited out. But notice what the Laodiceans thought of themselves. The Lord says in Revelation 3.17, Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I want to stop right here. If you think I'm calling you poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked, you're missing the point. Bear with me, it will become clearer. But my point here is that they thought they were okay. You see, they thought they were okay. They weren't desperate for Christ. They weren't desperate for God. They had all the trappings around them. They were a wealthy, the Laodicea was a wealthy community, and subsequently these people thought, well, I got everything I need. And they had everything they needed except Christ. How do we know? Because in Revelation 3.20, we see Jesus standing at the door and knocking Jesus is on the outside of the church saying, if you open the door, I will come in. God forbid that that should ever be said of any church. But that very same attitude of lukewarmness exists today. It's in our culture. We cannot escape it. 
the only thing that we could do as individual Christians, as believers, and as a church is be aware of it. That it is always on the outside. It's crouching on the outside. And just as the Lord said to Cain, you know, sin is at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. How is it today that denominations that were found that were biblical are now falling away in mass droves from the basic teachings of the Word of God? Things that were unconscionable and unthinkable several years ago. And you're seeing big name denominations falling apart, grabbing the culture and stay, instead of staying true to the Word of God. We as a church need to be aware of this. We as believers need to be aware of this. That's just the introduction. So now I'm going to ask you to take a look at your Bible at Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 42 to verse 47. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The book of Acts shows us the birth of the church, and we know the church was born on that Pentecost Sunday, and that church came out in power, in authority, in purity, and God was doing miraculous, miraculous things. We see in the early church what God can do with ordinary people who are surrendered to Him, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who live their lives in obedience to Him and want to see the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. We also see, and we're going to take a look in our text today, at four principles, four principles that if we practice these principles, if we are conscious of these principles, will not allow... Indifference, apathy, formalism, and religious ritual to infiltrate our church and to infiltrate our lives. The four principles are these. They devoted themselves, the Scripture says, to the apostles' teaching. Number one. Number two, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Number three, to the breaking of bread and number four, to prayer. Look at verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And let's start with the first one, the apostles' teaching. What does the apostles' teaching mean? You know, our New Testament is the collective works of the apostles. You know that? The New Testament is the collective work of the apostles. With the exception of a few books, 
Most of the books of the New Testament have been written by the apostles. And they lay the framework for the faith, and they lay the framework for the church. Here at Calvary, we commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because we commit ourselves to the Word of God. The Word of God. It is the foundation of our worship. It is the source of, of, of wisdom from which we counsel. It is the Word of God is our source for divine truth for the church. If you ever had an opportunity to talk to me and came to me with a particular question, you'll find that my responses will be from the Word of God. The Word of God says this. The Word of God says that. Why? Because it is the source of divine truth. And I want to call your attention to a key word in that verse. That word devoted or steadfast as it says in the King James. And what that word literally means is to continue to do something with intense effort with possible implication despite difficulty. It is persevering. It is pursuing. It is remaining consistent. It is continually doing it, doing it, doing it, no matter the adversity that comes upon you or that one might be able to face. Notice that it says of the early church that they were devoted. They were steadfast. They perpetuated. They stayed perpetual. And what did they stay perpetually doing? They stayed perpetually in the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Do you know how much fortunate we are than that first church? We are more fortunate in that we have been given the full revealed Word of God. They didn't have it. They had the Old Testament, where the church was a mystery. And so as the apostles, Peter, James, John, and the others began to teach, and as their words started to become the Word of God, they devoted themselves to that. We have that here. We have that in the Word of God. We have that in the Bible. But the issue is not that we have it and we're supposed to skim it, but God has given us His Word that we may grow thereby. We may grow by the Word of God. We would grow in faith. We would grow in confidence. We would grow in the things of the Lord. And the Lord would have it that we as believers would be students. We would be disciplined. We would remain steadfastly. Listen, that's my responsibility as a pastor to give you the Word of God and, and, to, and break the Word of God for you. But likewise, it is your responsibility to hunger and thirst for the Word of God. God. What the psalmist say, thy word I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. It says the words became sweet and I ate them. And they were nourishment for my soul. You know, when we ignore this, when we when we turn away from this, notice what the uh, we have a tendency to drift away. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 2. I want to show you this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. King James tells us, earnest heed. 
But notice again, for this reason, we must play, pay closer attention to what we have heard. What was it that they heard? It was the apostles' teaching. It was the gospel. It was the word of God. He says we must pay closer attention. We must really be absorbed in the word of God. And he gives a warning, lest we drift away from it. You're seeing that happening in churches all the time. They're not paying attention to the Word of God and subsequently they're drifting away. That word drift away is a, is, a, is a nautical term. It speaks of a ship that's not tied to the dock. Somebody pulls up to the dock, but they don't moor their boat to the ship, right? It's not tied to the dock. So subsequently, what happens to a ship that's not anchored or it's not moored? Well, it's going to go and come with the tide. That's what the writer of Hebrews is warning about. If you are not anchored to Christ, if you are not moored to Christ, then you're subject to go in and out with the tide of this world. And the tide of this world is evil. And the tide of this, the tide of this world is at enmity with Christ. And it's subtle. The writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 3 of that. He says, if that's the case... If you're, if you're going in and out with the tide, then he poses a question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That word neglect is to disregard. How shall we escape the judgment of God if we disregard, if we neglect the very Word of God? If we ignore the teaching of the gospel, if we ignore the study and meditation of the apostles' teaching, if we ignore fellowship, breaking and bread, and prayer, then we willfully, we willfully choose to ignore Christ. And that puts anyone who willfully chooses to ignore Christ in a dangerous position. If we are not anchored to Christ through these disciplines, we will be subject to drifting away. And God forbid that that should happen. Indifference, apathy, formalism, religious tradition, we must remain devoted slash steadfast to the Word of God, to the apostles' teaching. That's the first discipline. Let's look at the next discipline. Fellowship. This is the second principle. It's the Greek word koinonia. I've often said this many times, and I hope it doesn't produce a hush from you. But I've often said that fellowship is the most overrated virtue spoken of in the church. And what I meant by that is that people will prefer fellowship over the teaching of the Word of God over the breaking of bread, over obedience to Christ and to His commandments. But there's a common misconception today in the church at large, all churches. And that common misconception is that most people believe that the church exists solely for fellowship. Right? to have friends and to have groups. And the Greek word koinonia 
It's not about hanging out and having a good time. That's not what it's all about. It's fellowship, commonality in Christ. But the absence of genuine Christian fellowship replaced by individualistic Christianity is not the prescription of the Scriptures either. When you become part of a church, you become an extension of that church. Paul uses in Corinthians the example of a church of a body. And in that body there are varying gifts. And he equates them and he says, well, the finger can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or the foot say, hey, I want to become a brain. We hear so often about spiritual gifts. And we do believe that every believer possesses at least one spiritual gift. That gift is not given for your own edification. I want to be crystal clear. That gift is given for the edification of the church. That gift is given to be employed in the church. Right? And so consequently with the diversity of gifts, with the diversity of people, right? God advances in unity the church so that the church itself advances the gospel and as the church advances the gospel, God Himself is glorified in that. I believe that we as a body of Christ, I believe that we as a body of Christ need to do better in this area. I really, I really believe that with all of my heart. As a people of God, we need to reach out to each other. We need to encourage each other, regardless of whether they reached out to us. Right? Regardless, because we're in the church to serve. And we need to be about serving others in the church and out of the church. We need to serve the body of Christ. We need to serve those outside the church. We need to serve Christ with the propagation of the gospel, going out and proclaiming the gospel to others. Listen, there's many ways to do it. It doesn't mean you have to stand on a street corner with a placard and sit out and give a sign. I know that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but if you're living Christ, you will share Christ with others. You will be able, there are many in your network, your personal network, of whom you have earned the right to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to open up our homes and, and have people over. We need to be concerned for others, to bring meals, to, to attend to the hurting, to reach out to the discouraged, to fulfill the needs in the body of Christ. One of the greatest things that you could see in a church is when there's an identified need and somebody just sees it, they don't ask for permission, they see it, they step up and they fulfill that need. Now listen, what I'm saying here is true of all churches. But I believe we really need to practice this. Let's, let's put an end to individualistic Christianity of being a solitary entity among many. Let us connect with one another and let us encourage one another. You know, I like when I see people reach out and say, hey, I've had this in my life. Please pray for me. And you could go back to them and say, is there anything that I could do? How can I help you? 
I can't tell you how many times I get a text message from some of you or I get a phone call from some of you and you have no idea what's going on in my day. You have no idea of what I'm thinking about. But in a simple conversation, you bring encouragement to me. You send me a video. You send me a worship song. You send me a scripture. That needs to take place. That's koinonia. That's fellowship. Not like, hey, let's, you know, let's all hang out. I remember when I was younger, earlier in the church, we'd get together with God's people and we would have a great time. But you know what we would do? We would talk about the things of God. Yeah, we would laugh. Yeah, we would talk about silly things. Yeah, our kids would come up in the conversation. But we would talk about the things of God. Why? Because we love the Lord. And to be absorbed in Christ. Look at verse 47 of Acts chapter 2. Look at what this fellowship looked like. Verses 46 and 47. And day by day, continually, notice this, in one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what the koinonia looked like. What was the thing they had in common? It was Christ. If you are saved and you are Jesus Christ, what do I have in common with you? It is Christ. Over the past few years, I've developed friends all over the world now. All over the world. What binds us together? I have a pastor friend in Haiti. I have another pastor friend in the UK. I have another pastor friend in American Samoa. What binds us together? It is Christ. It is Christ. And so these people who I didn't know from a hole in the wall, I have fellowship, koinonia. What do I have in common with those of you here at Calvary that are born again? It is Christ. Let us break that bread. Let us come together. Let us fellowship in true Holy Ghost, Spirit-filled fellowship. Let's look at the third principle. The breaking of bread. The breaking of bread refers to the communion of the Lord's table. This is one of the two ordinances that have been given to the church by the Lord Jesus Christ, the other being baptism. And by the way, water baptism. By the way, immersion baptism, said the good old Baptist. Amen. Amen. You got to be dunk. You got to get wet. You got to go under. Today we're going to be coming to the table of the Lord to participate in this holy ordinance. Let me let me share something here. We are not as believers to forsake this ordinance. And and I want to be clear, we are not to treat it lightly right we have approached the table of the lord what paul states is a worthy manner now if you come from a roman catholic background i know it was taught in the roman catholic church that if you ate an hour before you took communion you were in in a unholy estate it's not what the bible is talking about 
When Paul talks about taking it in a worthy manner, Paul is talking about taking it with no continual, perpetual sin in your life. That's why he calls us to examine ourselves. That's why he says if we take the, the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment unto ourselves. The instruction is given to us directly from the Lord. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what, what would be a good excuse for not partaking of it? The only good excuse would be if you're in unrepentant sin. Then refrain from the table of the Lord. But this was a priority to the early church. It's a priority in our church. And the Lord's table is a holy ordinance. I want to emphasize that. It is a holy ordinance. The Lord's table should be revered. It should be desired. It should be consecrated. It should not merely be religious tradition. When we come before the table of the Lord, we're examining ourselves. When we come before the table of the Lord, we're drawing quiet before the Lord. The Lord is, is dealing with the issues of our heart and we're able to come and comm commemorate the Lord's death until He comes. I love every time we come to the table of the Lord because I, I think about this little church participating in what Christians for over 2,000 years are partaking in. I want to be clear, crystal clear, that this addresses the heart and not the form of worship, but rather the heart of worship. The whole context of verse 42 is that the early church was devoted, was steadfast, committed to all four of these principles in discipline. And so therefore, we need to continue to remain committed in the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking bread and prayer. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. And as I stated many, many, many times, and I still agree with this, I have never met anyone who professes to be a Christian who ignores these principles and is strong, vibrant, Holy Ghost-filled, powerful Christian doing great things for the kingdom of God. Let's look at the last principle. Prayer. And this is last in this order, but it's certainly not the least. This is an area that most churches are lacking. The prayer being referred to here in Acts is, is corporate prayer. Corporate prayer is a church. Prayer is the heartbeat of the believer. It is the spiritual fuel of a believer. To ignore or to minimize prayer will be to the detriment of your spiritual life. And if a church chooses to ignore corporate prayer as a church, it is to the detriment of the spiritual life of the church. Listen to these words. A.W. Tozer. The true success of any church is going to be prayer. We can easily deceive ourselves, but our purity and power and our spiritual, 
our spirituality and our holiness will parallel our prayer. E.M. Bounds, who's probably written some of the greatest works on prayer, writes this, It is only when the whole heart is gripped with the passion for prayer that the life-giving fire descends. For none but the earnest man gets access to the ear of God. Do you know that prayer is worship? Do you know that? Prayer is worship. That the object of our prayer should always be God and not us. And, and a perversity of prayer has been welling up in modern day theology and has overrun the church of Christ at large. Some have taken the worship of God and exchanged it for a wish list of desires. Some teach to demand of God, tell God rather than ask, rather than plead, to expect what God, to expect from God what they demand of God. Now let me state something absolutely clear. I do believe that we are to pray with expectation. I do believe that we should make our requests known to God, that we would pray with persistence and with vitality. But we always pray according to the will of God. But in prayer, we're to worship God as well. To take the object of our worship, to take God out of our prayers... And be solely focused on us and our needs is not biblical prayer. We have a Wednesday night prayer meeting that is corporate, right? We advertise that meeting. And in this meeting, we have one standing rule. When we come together as a church, we ask for nothing in and of ourselves. We pray that God would be glorified, that God would be exalted that we would testify to the goodness and the greatness of God. And the only thing we ask for, the only thing we ask for, is that God would bring revival to us individually and to our church corporately. And I've seen over this period of time how that model has been changing how people pray. When we come together to pray corporately, there's a base assumption. That base assumption is that you have a personal prayer life that you're praying. And we come together and we ask the Lord and we want to praise the Lord and we want to give glory to the Lord. Simply put, we need to be a praying church. We need to be a praying people. We cannot forsake the very lifeblood and the life fuel of our spiritual lives. We need to be a praying church. We need to have a disciplined personal prayer life. And we need to have a disciplined corporate prayer life. So we've seen where the early church was devoted to the four principles. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And that sounds great. But what did that result in for the early church? Look at verse 44. 
And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. All those who believe, they were devoted to these four principles. All of them who believe, they all believe and were together. They were united and had all things in, in common. Look at verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And I want to emphasize, this does not imply or infer that they were praising God when they came together to meet. It, it implies that they were praising God as a natural byproduct of their life. They were praising God. And notice what else it says. And they had favor with all the people. Man, I'll tell you, that's a church I want to be part of, don't you? That's a church I want to be part of, where everybody has all things in common. And I began this message by stating I was going to speak from my heart because I believe the danger that, I, that is out there facing other churches is there for us as well. And there is a tendency to become indifferent. And there is a tendency to become apathetic. And there is a a, a, a danger to become formalistic that I go to church on Sunday and that's the extent of my Christianity. And there is a danger of religious tradition. These are, these are not implication or charges that I make against the congregations. They're warnings. Let us heed. Let us be aware. And if we're not aware, let us go back to the basic disciplines as believers. This danger every church faces. We've even seen some of it here at Calvary. You know, we can get so wrapped up in, in, in the needs of our church and we don't have this and we don't have that and how come and why and why is it taking so long and all the other different things that we miss the, the true necessity and that is Christ. We have been saved. We have been redeemed. We are among God's elect. We have more than we ever deserved from Christ. Let us never lose focus about that. Just about every day of my life, I pray to God to send revival to the church, to me, to you, to the church of born-again believers across the globe. Every day at 12 o'clock, I join other people from all over the world to come together through the United Prayer Group of Sermon Audio, and we pray that God would send an awakening. Now listen, I want to be clear with this. When I talk about revival and when I talk about awakening, I'm not talking about the second great, the first great awakening. Do I think that God is going to send an awakening that all of America is going to repent? To be honest with you, no. But do I believe that God can send awakening in my life, in my heart? Can God send revival in a church? I absolutely believe yes. And I am being persistent. I am beseeching God. Lord, do an awakening in me. 
Do an awakening in Calvary. Do an awakening in all of you so that, Lord God, that all of the other nonsense of the world would filter away. And what would we see and what would we be driven by? Nothing but the pure love of Jesus Christ and to advance the gospel in the world. I love this church. I started by saying that. And I love all of you in this church. And I pray for you all by name. And I am believing God for revival and awakening in this church. I don't think there's anybody in this church who says, I don't need it. And I'll put myself at the top of that list. And I want you to join me in this. In just a few minutes, we're going to be gathering around the Lord's table. And before we do, I'm going to ask you to do something right now. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I really mean this. I'm going to ask you to join with me. And in the light of the Word of God that we have just seen, it's time to ask ourselves some serious questions, legitimate questions. No raising hands, no nothing. But I want you to ask yourself a few questions. Number one, are you devoted to the study and the meditation of God's Word? What place in your life does God's Word have? Do you read or do you study? Do you hunger and thirst for God? Be honest with yourselves. Or is God part of your religion? The time you give to God is if and when you come to church. Second question. Have you been active in fellowship in the church? Do you reach out to others? Do you desire to serve others in this church and to serve the Lord? Listen, we must serve Christ. And the first place we could start is serving others in the body of Christ. Third question. Do you treasure, do you desire the table of the Lord? Do you long for communion with the saints of God, remembering and commemorating the sacrifice of our Lord's death? Think for a moment. What does the table of the Lord mean to you? Are you convicted if you miss it? And then the fourth, and last and not least, but do you have an active and consistent prayer life? Is your prayer life a wish list of things and that you find yourself constantly asking God for? Do you worship God? Do you praise God? Do you exalt God in your prayers? I'm going to ask you something else. Ask yourself, will you consider coming together with others in the church to pray corporately 
for the church and as a church before the Lord? Listen, please know, and I say this with all sincerity, please, I'm not judging anybody. It's a burden that God put upon my heart. I ask myself these questions daily. So if you came to the realization that these four principles or disciplines are not active in your life right now, right now, between you and the Lord, will you repent? Will you ask God for forgiveness from the Lord? And will you do it prior to partaking of the Lord's table? God's Word is very, very clear. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you have repented, will you consider this? How you as a believer in Christ can join others in this church to help us reach the lost for Christ, to build and edify the body of Christ, and advance the kingdom of God on earth. I pray that that you will do so. Father, as, as we come to you this day, you are the God that searches the hearts. And so, Father, will you do that? Father, that we would put into practice, Lord, these four disciplines these principles as we've seen the early church. That we would abide in the apostles' teaching, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayer. And that, Father, Lord God, in each and every individual, would You stir our heart to Christ. Stir our hearts to Christ. Father, let all the nonsense of the world and all the temptations of the world and all the lust of the world, Lord, let it all fade away in the glory and in the grandeur of Christ. That we would love you, Lord God, with pure and unadulterated hearts. That we would be devoted and steadfast to you, Lord God. And that, Father, Christ would be glorified in and through our lives. For your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.